Hi, this is Jeff Houston as the 3D Money Guy. Since this is the first podcast, I'd like to take a few minutes and tell you a little bit about myself. I'm Minnesota, born and raised, raised on a farm, went, graduated from high school in 1979, and married my high school sweetheart. We have two daughters and six granddaughters. Growing up in the 60s and 70s was an interesting time because we had, I was a farm kid and we had interest rates were maybe 8% and inflation was about 12%. And so I grew up in the years where having debt was a really good thing because things were going up in value more than what, um, more than the interest that you paid on things. So pretty much you made money. If you borrowed money to buy things, you made money um, because it was going up in value more than uh, what the cost of owning it was. I loved life on the farm. Didn't like school very much, but I loved working on the farm. And I rented my first farm when I was in eighth grade. I bought my first new tractor when I was in 10th grade with a goal to have it paid for by the time I graduated from high school. I didn't play sports or really engage in much of anything for extracurricular activities in the school setting, only because my future, as I saw it, was out on the farm, and it's what I love to do. My teachers used to tell me that I needed to take time to be a kid, but I knew that or I believed that you know life was competitive and the sooner that I got started working on what my future was, the better off I'd be. And so I really saw that um, goofing around was uh, not something that was going to move me in the direction of my dreams. And I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's, you know, that was the way that I was when I grew up. In 1979, I was selected as a Minnesota State Star Farmer, which what that means is each year the state of Minnesota selects uh, a few people that are outstanding in their field with that have significant opportunity or that they see significant potential in, and that was me in 1979. I've always been an entrepreneur. Um, I think I've considered myself to be a little bit of a black sheep, but as I've gotten older, I guess it's not so much as, I don't as much see myself as being a black sheep as I do seeing myself as an entrepreneurial sheep. And so a lot of people don't get me. Um, And a lot of times there are misconceptions around somebody that's so... Uh, driven or so motivated by with an entrepreneurial spirit. When I turned 16, I came home and announced to my parents that I wanted to quit school. I wanted to be a high school dropout. (laughs) And um, that sent shockwaves through my parents' lives and they proceeded to drive in the next day to the school and talked with the principal of the school. Dennis was his name, and he said, boy, he was as shocked as they were that I was because he said, you know, he doesn't 
meet any of the criteria. You know, he's he does okay. He's you know socially, you know, he's okay with people, and he just he doesn't fit the profile. And um, <clears throat> so they ended up doing somewhat of a specialized program for me where I had farm building trades class, I had work study programs, and uh, got me through the next two years of school. And that was, uh, I, I credit the school system a lot for helping or adapting to uh, a student that had a different view on education. And um, that was one of the benefits from my perspective of going to a smaller school as they were able and they were willing to adapt. Uh, so I'm grateful to them for that. As a junior in high school, I was asked to be a part of a Youth for Christ singing group. And I really was hesitant to commit to that because it would take me away from uh, my business and my growing farming operation. But I did it anyway, and I'm so glad I did because in that group I met my um, met my wife. I met my girlfriend that fell, I fell in love with, and we embarked after graduation on, on what we thought was going to be the rest of our lives in a career and business of farming. But that was the early 80s, and that was a unique economic time. We bought farmland in 1980, paid $2,200 an acre for it, 2200 an acre. And then within three years, there was an economic depression in agriculture, and the bottom fell out of the economy. And so we ended up having land that was worth $700 an acre that we had paid $2,200 an acre for. So um, in 1985, I sold out of livestock and machinery and was able to pay down debt enough that I could hang on to the real estate. So we still own the family farm. It's the farm that I grew up in. I've lived in the same house my whole life. Um, when my brother introduces me, my older brother introduces me, he says uh, he's the one of the family that never made it very far in life. <laughs> he's still living in mom and dad's house. Uh, but we have made a life here. So in 1985, I found myself with a wife and two kids, no college education, you know, basic academic high school education for that matter. And uh, there was a lot of unemployed farmers out there at that time. So I started knocking around, trying to knock on doors and trying to find a, a place that, uh, that I could rebuild my, rebuild my financial life. Because I had been devastated financially, I still owned the farm, but I owed money against it. And, uh, you know, we needed about $25,000 a year to live. That was back in the mid-80s, uh, just to pay our bills and make our house payment. So I took a job as a groundskeeper, and I uh, was making about $8 an hour. And subsequently, I took a job as uh, a in a factory soldering computer parts under a microscope and I thought maybe I could make my way into 
the corporate world and thought I could climb the corporate ladder. And that was my first experience in finding out that I was more of an entrepreneur than I was a corporate guy. I remember I, I was working the 2 to 11 shift and I did that. I took that shift for two reasons. One, because I got 50 cents an hour more for working the, the, the second shift. And the other reason was because then it gave me from, you know, eight in the morning till one in the afternoon type of thing so that I, t- that I could work on other business opportunities or try to develop uh, some other ideas that could help me to get back on my feet again. Anyway, so it was a big parking lot. There was, you know, thousands of employees at this at this factory. It was a big parking lot, and I had parked because it was the second shift, and you know, I had to park way out in the back. And eleven o'clock at night, I'm done with work, and I'm walking out to my car, and it's it's dark out, and I hear the doors slam open behind me. You know, where they got pushed open really hard. And, you know, they hit the backstop, bang, you know, to hit the backstop. And I saw somebody was off work and they were coming out and they had slammed the door open coming out. And they were running. I was walking to my car, but this person was running out to their car. And and as they were running toward me, because uh, they were going to run past me, I heard that this person was talking to themselves. They were saying something. And uh, as... The guy ran past me. I heard what he was saying. And he was saying, I hate my job. I hate my job. I hate my job. Oh, man. I remember driving home that night and praying to God, you know, is this all there is for me? You know, is this the only thing that I can expect for my future? Is this as big as my future is going to ever going to be? I remember telling my wife that you could pay me $100,000 a year to do that job. And by the way, that was... I could have just as well said a million dollars a year or $10 million a year because $100,000 a year at that time seemed like $10 million a year to me. I mean, it was just so far off of the radar screen that it didn't even equate. And I said, you could pay me $100,000 a year to do this job and I wouldn't be happy. Um, And so what I wanted to do is find something that would fit with my skill set and that I could lay the the foundations to the life that I had imagined. I remember one morning I was at home, of course, because I went to work at two, and we have we had a dartboard in our basement and I used to throw darts just thinking about the future and thinking about my situation and how was I going to make progress or forward motion again. And Carol came down and she was not happy or there was some stress in our relationship at that, you know, moment. I don't remember what it was. But I remember asking her, 
a question that I didn't really expect an answer to, but I asked her, hey, what is it going to take for you to be happy? And as I say, I didn't expect an answer, but she responded with one, and she said, you know what, there's two things, Jeff. She said, number one, I want a home that I know that nobody can ever take away from us. And at that point, you know, we had the farm, we were making payments on the farm, but we didn't know whether we were going to be able to keep our house. And the other thing she said is, I want you to be happy and fulfilled and content in your career. And that really gave me an insight into the heart of a woman. You know, she wants to have the security of a home and she wants to have her husband, you know, happy and contented in what he's doing. And so I've never forgotten that. Well, anyway, it wasn't too long after that that a friend of mine came to me. He had, we had gone through the farm crisis together and he had lost his farm. And he came to me and he said, hey, Jeff, I know you've been looking for something for a while. And I saw something the other day and when I saw it, I thought of you. It's like, wow, okay, you know, thanks. What, what is it? And he proceeded to introduce me to somebody that introduced me to the world of financial services and financial advising. And so in 1988, I went into the insurance business. I started with the, in the insurance business, selling life insurance. And I learned how to sell, I learned how to build a business, and I learned how to, I, I learned the skill of working with people. That skill has served me well over the last 30 years. And I'm very grateful for the people who invested in me and who taught me and educated me on the financial foundations and what should what should a fin- a person's financial home really look like so while the financial services and insurance business was good for me it was certainly far from a bed of roses um i mean just picture this you're a farmer who went broke and now you're going out and telling people that you want to advise them on their finances you know there's a little bit of a dichotomy there and plus you know let's face it i was i was hurting from a a self-worth and self-esteem standpoint i mean i thought i could do no wrong in when i was in high school and i was touted and held up as you know a, a successful kid in my own right and then to you know get out into the world and within a few years you're broke financially now granted there were circumstances that happened that was beyond my control but i do remember um my dad telling me that there's nothing wrong with making mistakes in life as long as you're smart enough to learn from them. 
And so, you know, what I did is tried to sort out certain things that I had done wrong and uh, mistakes that I had made, and I tried to learn from them. And then I, the, the things that were circumstances that were beyond my control, I, I needed to let those go and set them aside. But anyway, back to getting into the, the financial services and insurance business, it was tough. I mean, I, I, I remember when I'd drive out the driveway, you know, every morning by 8 o'clock, I'd get dressed up and I'd drive out the driveway. And, and as I was driving down the driveway, I, I remember the feeling of not knowing which way to turn because I didn't have any place to go. I had nobody to see. And so I'm trying to think, well, which way am I going to go today? And uh, when I would have an appointment with somebody, uh, a lot of times, you know, I'd, I'd have to drive by the driveway one time because I, I didn't have the courage to turn in, right? You know, I mean, as hard as I tried, that steering wheel just would not turn into the driveway um, because I was had so much reluctance and call reluctance to go and talk to people. I had bought a Jeep Cherokee. It was a two-door Jeep Cherokee that had about 140,000 miles on it. And I bought that to use as my selling car. And it had chrome running boards on it. And I drove that for a few years, the first few years of selling. And then when I sold it, I remember it had a permanent stain right outside the driver's door on the chrome running boards. And it was for me throwing up, you know, literally opening the door and throwing up before appointments because it was so hard for me to... You know, the acidity in my stomach had, had uh, um, you know, chewed the, the uh, chrome off the running boards. And, um, and that's what it was like for me starting out. It was hard. But I had <clears throat> um, a goal that I had to see 10 new people every week. And I didn't always hit it, but most of the time I did. Between, I saw between 8 and 10 new people every week. And over the course of time, I started showing them how they could save and accumulate money and how they could save a little bit of money. You know, if they'd save $50 a month or $100 a month or $200 a month, I'd show them what, what that would do for them. And I showed them the difference between waiting, you know, if somebody started when they were 25 years old or they waited till they were 30 years old, what difference would that make? And it was always fascinating to me of how much of a difference that makes because it isn't interest on interest on the front end, right, when you have a small amount. The big deal is, is interest on interest on the back end. So the 25-year-old that starts, he has, instead of the 30-year-old, he has five extra years but it's not five years on the front end. It's not the, oh, he puts $2,000 a year away for five years, for five extra years. So he has $10,000 more in. That's not, the, that's not a big deal. The big deal is the compound interest on the back end. So now, you know, where he, that, that, that amount of money from, you know, 60 to 65 um, or from, you know, 65 to 70 or that type of thing, that, that that amount of money is massive. I mean, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars of difference uh, because interest on interest on the back end makes such a tremendous um, impact. 
I loved working with average Americans. I remember one of my favorite clients was a husband and wife that lived in a small community close to me, and she worked at a nursing home, and he worked at a convenience store. They didn't make a lot of money, and so they weren't able to save a lot of money. But they started putting away through an employer-sponsored plan with me. They started putting away, uh, it was like $40 a month or $50 a month, something like that. Not much more than a dollar a day, right? You know, a dollar, dollar, fifty a day. And when I delivered their plan to them and showed them how much money they could have, you know, how much money they would have in their account, when they turned, when they retired, I remember she started crying and, um, because she said, you know, I never thought that we could have that much money. And it was just the, the saving a little bit every day, you know, saving a little bit every day over time has a, a big influence, a big, makes a big difference. Um, Carol and I have always lived with the philosophy of a 10, 10, 80 uh, and we, that is that we give 10% of our income, we save 10% of our income, and then we spend 80% of it. And what's really cool is if you do it in that order. See, I think most people, they tend to take, well, I'm going to live, and then if there's anything left over at the end of the month, I'm going to save it or I'm going to give it. And the reality is there's never any money left over if you do it that way. I mean, let me prove let me prove it to you. So let's say you went home tonight and you're balancing your checkbook and you found out that there's you know been a, a, an accounting error, whether the bank called you or whether you made a, a mistake or whatever, and there's five hundred dollars more money in your checkbook than what you thought there was. Right? So just let that settle in for a minute. So you got five hundred dollars that you didn't know that you had. I'm, I don't know you personally, but I'm guessing that you would have some place that that $500 could go. You, I mean, really quickly, you could think of some place that that $500 needs to go. Some place it needs to go. So see, having money at the end of the month is not practical. You need to start at the beginning of the month and you need to give something and you need to save something and then spend the rest. And for us, that was 10, 10, 80. And, you know, I never felt guilty, even as my income was rising. I never felt guilty about spending the 80% because I'd taken care of business on the front end. You know, I mean, I'd taken care of it. And so as our lifestyle increased and we were able to have, you know, um, boats and nice cars and um, and second homes and all of these things, as my lifestyle was able to increase, I never felt guilty about it because I was, or when we would get a raise or when we would have a, a big, um, some additional income that came in from something, you know, we tithed 10% or we, you know, gave 10% and then we would, um, save 10%. And there are times when we would give over and above 10%. And there are times when we would save over and above 10%. 
you know, if we had a windfall and we were saving for something or there was a special project that we wanted to give to, we would do that. But I'm just saying as a benchmark, that 10-10-80 rule has really worked for us. So I spent nearly 25 years building a financial services practice, and then I sold the company in 2010. And my son-in-law and I started buying real estate in the downturn. My son-in-law has a background in real estate and construction. And of course, I had some money from the sale of my business, and I had a certain, a particular set of uh, skills from a money standpoint. And so now we buy real estate, primarily multifamily apartment buildings that we buy for our own portfolio. But I have never lost the love for helping people with their finances. And that's really why 3D Money Guy was founded where it came out of. That's the genesis of 3D Money Guy. It's just simply my love for helping people with their finances. I find there's a lot of misinformation that is in the marketplace. I think one of the worst places you could take your financial education from would be Money Magazine or even I'm going to go out on a limb and say traditional financial planners because the f- traditional financial planning is very needs-based. And I would anticipate that we'll talk about that much, much more in future episodes. But um, financial planning is needs-based. And I'm saying that I never, I, I've done, I did financial plans for people for a long time. And I have to say that in most cases, the financial plan wasn't worth the paper that it was written on because people's lives always changed. And so it took a snapshot in time. And, but, but, but it, wasn't value, it wasn't valuable to have an output-based um, financial plan. Um, instead of thinking about how much money I need, I think a better question to ask is how much could I have, right? Uh, how much do I need? Oh, and then I set a target. Well, what are you going to do if you hit that target? Are you going to quit or what? You know, I mean, what are you going to do when you hit that target? Oh, I guess I'm going to re- retire. Um, or, or I guess I'm not going to retire because I don't have that. Um, well, what if your situation doesn't allow for you to uh, to keep working because of health needs or family situation or whatever. The point being is that uh, a target-based objective is, is not very good. A better question to ask would be how much could I have based on what my current situation is? How could I improve the efficiency of what I'm doing? How can I do the best I can with what I have? That's, a, that's the right question to be asking. But very few financial advisors have the depth to help their clients ask those types of questions. How do we improve the efficiency of what we're doing? How do we do the best we can with what we have? Because financial planning, let's face it, I mean, that's easy. 
right? I mean, you just got a computer program and you punch in all the numbers and it spits it out and says, well, for you know, based on all of this and inflation rates and this and that and what you want to have happen, you know, you just need to save, you know, three thousand dollars a month, <laughs> and you're going. How am I going to do that? I don't have it. Well, then, you know, well, the, you know, then we start making compromises. Well, prior, why don't you prioritize what your needs are here? And, and so then they start paring down how much you can save. And, you know, and at the end of the day, you say, well, I can save $100 a month. Well, that's a long way from $3,000 a month. But, hey, it's a start, you know. And, and so, see, it, it just doesn't really make sense of how people approach, how financial planners approach the financial planning process. And so I push back from that. And I'm a bit of a contrarian as it relates to that. And I think that's part of the uniqueness of the 3D Money guy is that I'm, I don't have an agenda. You know, everybody in the financial services industry that wants to wants to uh, advise you on your money, they all have an agenda, right? They, they want your money. Let's face it, the companies that are selling products and they want your money and the financial advisors, they want to get paid for you know, doing what they do. And all that's good, it's fine, it's not bad. But everybody's got an agenda. And my... I don't have an agenda because I don't have a company. I don't really need the money anymore. And I don't need the fame or fortune, um, you know, fame or recognition, I should say. I, I just have a sincere desire to give people good, solid financial education. And I think that lack of an agenda is what should is is why you should listen why you should keep listening because there aren't that many people out there i don't know of any people out there that don't have an agenda so let's briefly talk about what you can expect from listening to this podcast and from uh, following 3D Money Guy. I like to think of it this way. There are really three phases of a person's life financially. There is the accumulation phase, there's the preservation phase, and there's a distribution. Accumulation, if I were to put it in years, is probably when you're 25 years old to you know, 45 years old, let's say. And then preservation is from 45 years old to 65 and then distribution is from 65 till, um, we'll say, 85. And uh, accumulation is simply where I'm trying to accumulate. I'm just I don't. When when you start at 25, you're you don't have anything, but you're trying to get something, and that's where it starts at 25. And by 45, you've got you know some money that's accumulated, some assets, some you know you maybe have a house, you've got some equity. You know, you have a retirement plan at work. You've got some things you've been paying into Social Security or you've been paying into, uh, you know, some savings plans. Maybe you got some Roth IRAs. Maybe you bought a rental house, whatever the case is, right? So 25 to 45, that's kind of how it starts and where it goes. You're really trying to build and grow and accumulate some things. 
at, at 45, things begin to transition a little bit in your thinking because now you have some assets. And, you know, by the way, these ages are approximates, you know, so you can, um, it, it can, there can be a little variances, but generally speaking, there's a mind, I'm speaking about mindsets. And from a mindset standpoint, when a person goes into preservation, they're, they're saying, you know, I, I, I maybe have to stop swinging for the fences and I, because I have some assets. I don't want to lose what I have. And so you get a little more defensive in your strategies and you uh, want to preserve what you have. Yes, you still want to accumulate. You still want to grow, but you also want to preserve what you have. That's a preservation mindset. And then there's a distribu distribution mindset. Now, distribution starts when you say, hey, I don't want to work anymore. I want to begin taking income off of my assets and off of my investments. That's where it starts. And then where, where distribution ends is with, a, with th a thinking that, hey, you know what? Maybe I'm going to have some extra money left over when I die and I might uh, need or I, 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 that I might not need. And so how do I not give it to the government and, you know, how do I get it to where I want it to go ultimately uh, once I'm not here anymore? So that's kind of the three phases of a person's life financially. And what we're going to talk about is we're going to address all three of those. Now, we're not going to address them sequentially. So it's not, oh, the first part is, first part of 3D money is going to be about, um, you know, to the, to the, um, people in accumulation, and then we're going to go to preservation, and then we're going to talk about distribution. So it's not a sequential conversation. It's a dynamic conversation. It's not sequential. It's dynamic. And that means that we're just going to talk about life and money. But one of the key principles that I'm going to cover in podcast two is the concept of velocity of money. Velocity of money is the most powerful money concept in the world, period, end of story. If you understand velocity of money, no matter what phase of life you're in, velocity of money, the concept of that, the idea of that will help you live a more productive financial life. So look for that in the next episode, Velocity of Money with 3D Money Guy. So thanks for listening to Meet the Guy with the guy on 3D Money Guy podcast. For more like information and more like this and for other resources, make sure to keep up with the guy. Visit our website at www.3dmoneyguy.com and don't forget to follow the 3D Money Guy on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. This is your host, Jeff Houston, 3D Money Guy, signing off. So long.